This program is about unsolved mysteries. Whenever possible, the actual family members and police officials have participated in recreating the events. What you're about to see is not a news broadcast. Tonight on Unsolved Mysteries, the story of a lonely housewife in Maine who searched for love in her newspaper's personal columns. Two years ago, she went on a blind date and vanished. In Gulf Breeze, Florida, 135 people claim to have seen UFOs. They have photographs and a videotape to verify their claims. Close encounter or a hoax? We'll also examine the case of a man awaiting trial for the murder of two teenage girls. Joe Shepard has escaped. Perhaps you can help catch him. Tonight marks the beginning of a new season of Unsolved Mysteries. Every week, we'll be bringing you the most intriguing stories from across the country. True stories in which ordinary people have been swept up in the most extraordinary and mysterious circumstances. Someone watching tonight may have that one clue, that one vital piece of information that could help. This season, we're introducing a new toll-free 800 telephone number. Operators are standing by, so join me. You may be able to help solve a mystery. I want you to think back to your childhood. I want you to dig into the recesses of your mind, to the place where repressed memories live, chomping at the bit to be one day released into plain old memories. Are you with me? Good. I want you to imagine yourself standing sheepishly in a doorway or slowly creeping your way to the bottom of the stairs. The faint blue glow of your parents' late night TV is they are watching something they forbade you from watching, yet through slightly open fingers, trembling as you heard the booming, deep voice of Robert Stack. As a Sith keyboard intro of Unsolved Mysteries filled the room you weren't supposed to be in, you watched something that would terrify you for the rest of your life. This is the story of Unsolved Mysteries. This is Twice for Us. Hello. Hi. And welcome back to the Toys R Us podcast. Your weekly journey into the past to deliver to you the history of a piece of your childhood that made it something memorable, whether you want to admit it or not. Which is probably not wanting to admit this one. No. My name is Richard Hunt, and with me as always is my cousin and co-host, Brian Muth. Hey, everybody. Brian, this week we are covering a topic that I have been dying to cover ever since we decided that the word toy cast a wide net. Yeah, me too. A TV show so adored and beloved by so many 
that we have to do it some justice. We do. In fact, Netflix is even rebooting it. Is that right? Yeah. All right. Unsolved motherfucking mysteries. <sighs> I remember watching it despite the fact that I was not supposed to. Not, I was allowed to, which is really surprising because my parents didn't hardly let me watch anything. <laughs> and it was terrifying. Fuck yeah. You heard the... You're like, no. You're like, no, 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 no. Oh, boy. But you, it's like a car crash. You were drawn in. Yeah. You know, you could not fucking turn away from it's it. It's like the, the tractor beam got you at that point. <laughs> Absolutely. That being said, are you ready to crack into the history of Unsolved Mysteries? Hopefully we can solve this mystery. Let's do it. Let's go. We start our story in April 1986. We meet up with television producers Terry Dunn Muir and John Cosgrove. These two had just premiered three episodes of a miniseries. The three specials called Missing, Have You Seen This Person? Ooh. Which were hosted by David Burney and his wife Meredith Baxter and aired on NBC. The, spe- the specials were so successful that producers Terry Dunn Muir and John Cosgrove decided to broaden the scope of the show to include all types of mysteries. Including paranormal shit and oh, aliens. Yes. Fucking oh, yes. aliens, man. What would become the pilot episode of Unsolved Mysteries, but was then just a special, debuted on January 20th, 1987, and was hosted by Raymond Burr. Carl Malden helmed the next two specials, and then Robert Stack took over hosting duties, narrating the next few specials and the weekly episodes until the show went off the air in 2002. Unsolved Mysteries used a documentary format to provide real-life mysteries and featured reenactments of unsolved crimes, missing persons cases, conspiracy conspiracy theories, and unexplained paranormal phenomena, alien abduction, ghosts, UFOs, and secret history theories. In contrast to many similarly formatted news magazines that aired in the 21st century, including NBC's own Dateline, NBC News disowned Unsolved Mysteries and requested a disclaimer at the beginning of each episode saying that the show was not a newscast. Yeah, I remember that. In the early episodes, the following message was relayed to the audience at the beginning of each program. This program is about Unsolved Mysteries. Whenever possible, the actual family members and police officials have participated in recreating the events. What you are about to see is not a news broadcast. In the, in the specials that first aired on NBC, the last sentence of the disclaimer said, This is not an NBC News production. Viewer discretion advised. <laughs> For other episodes like Mysteries of the Psychic Mind or Mysteries of the Afterlife, the message was, This program is about unsolved mysteries. The reenactments and special effects are actual eyewitness accounts. What you are about to see is not a news broadcast. Okay. Each episode of Unsolved Mysteries usually featured three or four segments, each involving a different story. The show's host offered voiceover narration for each segment and appeared on screen to begin and end uh, segments and offer segues. While the show was in production, viewers were invited to telephone, write letters in, or in the newer broadcast, submit tips to their website if they had uh, information that might help solve a case. The segments all involved actual events and generally fell into one of four categories. Criminal cases. Yep. Accounts of abductions, suspicious death, homicides, robberies, claims of of innocence, missing persons, and other miscellaneous unsolved cases where the suspects were either were either unknown or could not be located. 
Lost Loves. A concept of individuals trying to reunite with someone from their past, often involving closed adoption, people separated by circumstances, mm-hmm. or an unknown good Samaritan that saves someone's life. Unexplained slash alternate history. Our alternative theories of history, including the theories that outlaws such as Billy the Kid and Butch Cassidy did not die as history recorded, that the Russian Grand Duchess Anastasia Romanov survived the 1918 regicide that killed her entire family. Oh no, she did. <laughs> That the assassination of Louisiana Senator Huey Long may have been an accident. That the assassination of, <laughs> assassination of Martin Luther King was in fact a conspiracy. And that Kurt Cobain may have been murdered. Well, that one I believe. That one, yes. Yeah, for for sure. sure he was murdered. Uh, paranormal matters, which were accounts of miracles, alleged UFO slash alien encounters, including an examination of uh, the Roswell UFO incident and the Phoenix UFO Incident. Oh, I remember that. And the UFO incident at Yupin, Belgium, observed by NATO fighter jets, or scientific questions about life on Mars, ghost, Bigfoot, or other inexplicable phenomena. Viewers were occasionally given updates on success stories where suspects were brought to justice and loved ones were reunited. The show itself has been credited for bringing increased attention to certain cases and thus allowing them to be solved. Which is awesome. It's very awesome. One episode featured a video of an arsonist filming an unidentified house being burned down while he was giving strange commentary. Once it had been featured on the show, viewers were able to identify the house involved and two suspects were arrested. (laughs) Got him. In the early days of Unsolved Mysteries, it could be tough to get people who had supernatural experiences to appear on the show. Sure. They were afraid, Kazrod said, of exposing themselves to potential ridicule. Back then, people didn't want to come out of the woodwork to say they'd seen ghosts, he said. It was yeah. still really tough to get people to do agree to agree to do interviews. Still, there seemed to be some therapeutic value in it for the interviewees. Having us talk to them and pay such close attention to them uh, and help them explain it to the public seems to help them, Cosgrove said. That makes sense. You know, kind of getting it out there. And, yeah. You know? It always helps to talk about things. It does. According to director David Vassar, who directed 100 segments of the show, in the early episodes, if there were any reenactments, we actually had the real people play themselves. That's why, he said in DVD commentary, the acting of these first seasons when we were just getting our feet wet was not up to snuff. As we went through the seasons, we were able to pay top dollar and get good people, so it just got better and better. Yeah, that makes sense. But unfortunately, not all actors went to Juilliard, and there was often a good way to tell the good from the bad. This is an Unsolved Mysteries hallmark, and it's a secret, Vassar said in the DVD commentary, but if the narrator talks a lot and the actors don't talk at all, it means the acting is really pretty bad. Oh. And the narrator is uh, going to cover everything up. If there's everything out in the clear between the actors, it means the actors were pretty... Uh, usually pretty good. So the game was, how many seconds of the sync sound takes could you get to play in the open? The more sync you got to play in the open, the better the scene. Pretty simple. Okay, that makes sense. The interviews were so important to the way Unsolved Mysteries was produced, Cosworth said. People would think that the most important thing were the recreations, but really having articulate people who can summon up emotions of what it felt like was key. Yeah. You trusted the interviews, added director Kevin uh, Rosenfeld. If you didn't have that, you didn't have a good episode. We were all used to real life, Esther said, and in the first couple of seasons, it shows. 
Only occasionally have we worked with actors, and if we did, we worked with actors as hosts because they were hosting a documentary we were making. In the beginning seasons of the show, the show shot with a small crew, too. On the first season, it was basically a director, a director of photography, an assistant photographer, a sound man or producer, and a lighting or grip guy. There were five or six of us trying to make these little movies. Damn. It was like silent films in the 1900s. We did everything ourselves. In Unsolved Mysteries' early years, visual effects weren't very advanced, and the show didn't have a huge budget for them either. When you're shooting ghost stories, it gets kind of tricky if you want to do it without special effects, said Bob Wise, um, another director in the DVD commentary. The crew was forced to get creative. For the episode Gordy's Ghost... Wise chose to give the ghost an overblown white look. We put a lot of light on the actor's face, Wise said. The poor little girl could barely keep her eyes open. <laughs> Which is just like, hey. Blind the kid, it's cool. You gotta be creative about yeah, some shit. What was that? My charger unblocked. <laughs> oh. Thought it was Unsolved Mysteries. Tonight we examine the sound of the falling charger. For another sequence that showed a ghost lying down next to the girl on the bed, the crew took off the mattress and had the actor lie on boxes and pulled on springs underneath to achieve the effect. <laughs> ah, nice. Ghostly effects in other episodes were created in camera using double exposure and projection. In the early 90s, an hour-long scripted drama cost about $1.5 per episode. Cosgrove told the Baltimore Sun that unsolved mysteries could made for could be made for about twenty five to forty percent of that cost. Oh wow! If you're the president of NBC Entertainment, what show are you going to buy? The Sun asked. Seriously, the one that costs three hundred and seventy five thousand dollars to make and finishes eleventh in overall ratings, or the one that costs one point five million to make and finishes fortieth? <laughs> yeah, it's like the choice is fucking simple. Yeah. You know? Despite the amateur documentary-style format, Robert Stack often compared Unsolved Mysteries to that of theater. I can definitely see that. Yeah. He said, we're balancing two needs here, he told Los Angeles Times in 1990. We're trying to produce theater and we're trying to do a public service. Stack's stage comparison didn't end there. He saw his duty as host, according to Cosgrove, as akin to stage manager in Our Town, the three-act play written by Thornton Wilder, which takes place in the small town of Grover's Corners and features stories from a period between the years of 1901 and 1913. The, store, the stage manager saved, served as the narrator. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the show's segments covered a number of themes, including murder, missing persons, wanted fugitives, UFOs, ghosts, unexplained, missing heirs, amnesia, fraud, and more. Each show consisted of four segments plus an update to an older case. Almost every show has an unexplained death in it, and almost every show has a lost <laughs> love story, Mira yeah. told Los Angeles Times. That will mix and match in there uh, a legend or a gold mine or put in a UFO story. Mm -hmm. The idea, Cosgrove said in a DVD commentary, was to have four different segments in four different areas so people would find something that they liked. That's a good idea. Diversify. Fucking smart. Yeah. Unsolved Mysteries' original goosebump-inducing theme was written by Gary Malkin. Damn it, Gary. Who also served as the show's main composer. One of the things that really worked on the show was the music, Cosgrove said. Yep. I had a lot of friends whose kid would run out of the room because the music scared them so much. <laughs> Producer Raymond Bridges agreed. Can music, confirm, did do. 100%. The music was so distinctive that you didn't even have to be in the room to know that Unsolved Mysteries was uh -huh. on. He said, the theme was updated four times. 
I'm going to put in a clip of the 1995 version here. Okay. And when the show was revived in 2008, it came with, came back with a brand new theme and new logo altogether. Mm. I'll put that clip there, too. In 1990, Unsolved Mysteries ranked number 11 for all-time TV series that year. Boom. Once a Sleeper, the reality series hosted by Robert Stamp, former star of The Untouchables, now is just a flat-out smash, the Los Angeles Times wrote two years later. In the last four weeks, for instance, the unshowy but rock-solid series has demonstrated its clout, ranking 3rd, 16th, 8th, and 10th in the ratings. Baller! And ratings were well-deserved. As not only was it highly rated... It was nominated for six Emmy Awards. Holy shit. Yeah. The category was Outstanding Informational Series, and Unsolved Mysteries was nominated in 1989, 1990, 1991, 1992, 1993, and Miriam Cosgrove had three ideas as to why Unsolved Mysteries was what was such a smashing success. Number one, of course, was Robert Stack. Of course, yeah. Whose poker face delivery could send chills up anyone's spine. Anyone. Robert's con- contributions were immense, really impossible to calculate. Cosgrove said, in tribute to Robert Stack after he died in 2003, his fame and charisma helped attract an audience. No one could deliver a spooky line like Robert Stack. And seriously, he was like someone you could like take seriously, no matter yeah. what it was. It's yeah. like it You're was like, a oh, fuck. fucking urgent threat. Yeah. You know, it's like that dude that they can't find. He's outside your fucking window. You're like, oh god damn it, there he is. <laughs> That's why I never opened up my windows as a kid. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Because <laughs> of Robert Stack. Because of fucking Robert Stack. Hey, you know, he's still at large to this day. Fuck. You're like I'm still serious. Like, small. <laughs> Jesus, I have two windows. That's double the ways this <laughs> asshole can get in. Oh, God. Number two, curiosity. People are fascinated by the idea that they might be living next door to one of these people. Oh, and yeah. might be able to help find them, you're told Los Angeles Times in 1990. And number three, one of the things that attracted people to the show, Cosgrove said, was that they wanted to be scared. Yeah. Yeah. And they used a variety of tactics to make sure that you were scared. Yep. The show used a visual effects company called Area 51. <laughs> that company was tasked with creating the show's effects from sparkling clocks to creepy ghosts to, appropriately, aliens. In fact, the Allagash abduction segment featured some of Kagro's favorite effects by Area 51. We had such detailed paintings and drawings from the abductees, and we based our special effects session on their drawings and paintings, not just from descriptions. Ugh. Goddamn. Smart. Yeah. They even once literally blew up a church. 
<laughs> which makes them like a fucking Swedish metal band. <laughs> Uh, the, seg- the segment Lucky Choir tells the story of a choir that met to practice every Wednesday night at 725, except one night when every choir member was late, and as a result, avoided an explosion at 727pm. That surely would have killed them all. The producers chose a church in Unadilla, Nebraska that was slated for demolition and planned an explosion. They flew a special effects expert to the site and surrounded the church with five cameras framed by plywood boxes that would protect the gear and cameramen. We were supposed to cave in the roof, and we framed the shot slightly above the roof, Rosenfeld, who directed the segment, recalled. The special effects guy blew it up way bigger than we expected. (laughs) A fireball went into the air probably a quarter mile. We were all scared. (laughs) Dude, that is so cool. So badass. Shrapnel speared the plywood boxes around the camera and the operators, and debris rained down for 20 minutes. <laughs> the cameraman walked up to the macho special effects guy pretty angry and said, What did you put in there? And the macho, macho guy goes, 95 sticks of dynamite and 3 gallon tubs of gasoline. <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. Rossenfield remembers, We immediately rushed to the site to film the scene because we couldn't recreate that. We knew we weren't doing that again. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no fixing that in post. No, not at all. Oh, fuck. However, despite many of the advancements they had made in effects for shooting, one of the show's most popular segments was tough to shoot. It was called the Mystery Hum, about the Teos Hum, so named because the low-frequency sound began to be reported in Teos, New Mexico, in 1992. In other part of the world, it is just called the Bristol Hum, the Bondi Hum, or just the Hum. Director Bob Wise said the segment was particularly difficult to film because there wasn't many visual elements for the audience. The hum's low frequencies didn't come through televisions well. (laughs) Still, he said, we got a lot of great responses to this because a lot of people around the country and the world are hearing the same thing, and there's a whole network of people who hear this thing. It's the hollow earth, Hank. (laughs) God. (laughs) Jesus. Uh, although a large chunk of the episodes contain paranormal or, le- or extraterrestrial cases, the crew largely remained skeptical. Though Stack was, in Cosgrove's words, terribly proud of our contribution to catching bad guys, he was pretty skeptical of the show's paranormal and extraterrestrial segments. Rightfully so. In some of those narration sessions, he'd be like, Come on, Raymond, Bridges recalled. <laughs> but even Stack found some stories like the Allagash abduction segment pretty compelling. That one even nailed Robert, Cosgrove said. It got under his skin. These guys are so normal and credible and stood to gain nothing by making up a story. As many as 80 of the pr- 80% of the supernatural cases were dismissed outright, according to Bridgers. But like Stack, the producers found themselves swayed by certain stories. When we picked up a ghost story, we're always mindful of these stories where there seems to be a historical reason for there to be a haunting, Cosworth said in the DVD yeah, commentary. Yeah, that would make sense. I don't think any of us, when we start Unsolved Mysteries, really believe in ghosts. We all, we've all had to take a second look of our preconceived notions after the experiences that we've had. Initially, we'd be very skeptical of our stories, but when you find that there is a story, that there are facts and history and accounts from the past that match up to what people see... It takes your breath away and makes a lot of the stories more credible. Yeah, that makes sense. It's really like, oh, shit. Like, I I definitely get that. You know who else is credible? Is is it our own trench-coated fellow? Yes, it is. It's Facty. Fact in the box. 
They filmed many of Robert Stack's segments at a Masonic temple. Oh, really? Yes, that's because they they realized that would give them the best ambiance. Nice. They were like, ooh, shit. Yeah, I can kind of see Spooky! Bollywood actor, director, Feroz Khan, recreated the theme music of Unsolved Mysteries for the title music of his film, Janashin. Feroz Khan's new and different remix version played during the title sequence of the film. According to the Unsolved Mysteries website, 50% of fugitives featured on the show were eventually caught, usually with the help of the viewers. Dude, that's awesome. That's a fucking killer stat. That is a great stat. Ultimately, more than 300 cases from the show's 12-season run were eventually wrapped up, according to a Reddit AMA with creators Terry Dunmuir and John Cosgrove. That's a, still, that's a great And you can still stat. submit tips to their website. Oh, really? Yeah. Man. Uh, A-listers appeared on the show before they were famous. In one of his first on-screen roles, Matthew McConaughey played a murder victim on Unsolved Mysteries. No shit. Yeah. All right. Uh, other alums include Hawaii Five-O's Daniel Day Kim, Star Trek's Brett Spiner, Curb Your Enthusiasm's Cheryl Hines, Arrow's David Ramsey, and Saturday Night Live's Taron Killam. Oh, Addi- wow. Additionally, future Sideways Oscar nominee Virginia Madsen co-hosted the show's 11th season. Oh. And then I watched the episode last night, and fucking Doug Jones was in it. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there openly weeping at 1 a.m. about Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> By Cuba. Only Doug Jones. Doug <laughs> yeah. Jones, man. Um, NBC canceled the show because they wanted more shows for younger audiences. Oh, lame. Robert Stack actually parodied his character not once, but twice. The first was for a 1997 Pepsi commercial where he warned us of the dangers of uh, Pepsi theft. Pepsi theft. It can happen anywhere, anytime. Fight back. Introducing the Pepsi Club. Now Pepsi moments don't have to become anxious moments. Excuse me. What you were about to see did not actually happen, but it could happen. Look, Ma, the Pepsi Club works. But today, thank you, Pepsi Club. Pepsi, Generation Next. Available in six-pack. And then, more blatantly, 1998's Basketball, (laughs) which I'm just going to put the clip in right here. That's awesome. A young man, his whole life in front of him, disappears. A familiar story, yes, but this is no ordinary joke. Joseph R. Cooper, perhaps the most loved sports figure in the country, vanished. According to Mrs. Elsie Melcher, a neighbor who asked not to be identified, Joe Cooper left his house two weeks ago. According to Angelique Bones, a nosy bitch who lives up the street, he took with him only a toothbrush, a wallet, a steamer trunk, and a plane ticket to Calcutta. Police theorized several possible scenarios of what happened with a man affectionately known to the world as Cooper. Well, I don't know where the hell he is. For all I care, he could be hanging by his neck in his fucking closet. Scenario number one. He's hanging by his neck in his fucking closet. The night before his disappearance, Coop's girlfriend had paid him a visit. According to friends, they had quarreled. If you're looking for Joe Cooper, I suggest you look wherever you find the most heinous, blatant, and vile exploitation of children on the planet. Scenario number two. Coop went to Disney World. Here is a photograph of Joe Cooper taken just days before his disappearance. 
And here is a computer-enhanced simulation of what he might look like today. Oh, come on, Miss Reed, it's the dental card. These are not the kind of people to be looked up to or emulated. The severed and mutilated head was stamped and postmarked Denver. The owner still has not stepped forward. Update, the disappearance of the Milwaukee Beers basketball star. When Joe Cooper discovered that most of the workers in the Beersware factory were youngsters, not even old enough for prostitution, he personally flew to Calcutta. His new all-adult workforce now makes a decent wage, enjoys full medical benefits and in-house childcare. All of us here are glad that such a terrific human being like Joe Cooper has returned. If I were a woman, I'd sure like to be his girlfriend, walking in the park hand in hand, wrapping my legs around him, cuddling in the spoon position, our hearts beating in unison, staring into his eyes over our morning coffee. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, thank you. And when we come back, our next unsolved mystery, Come on, kids. Where did it go? We're going to the game. Yes! Um, it had a dramatized spin-off. It was called Final Appeal from the Files of Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, damn. According to a synopsis from the New York Times, the show was a reality-based series based on the NBC series Unsolved Mysteries. It examines real-life cases of potential injustice involving convicted persons who, according to impartial observers, may be innocent. Robert Stack hosted, uh, and Final Appeal, Final Appeal premiered in September 1992, and was canceled shortly after. Hmm. Though Unsolved Mysteries left the airways in 2010, the show's official YouTube page still continues to post user-submitted cases as well as updates on past segments. Dude, that's awesome. Life uh, after death. Exactly. Exactly that. Thanks to Jack the Ripper, there was an Unsolved Mysteries Halloween special. In its first year on the air, Unsolved Mysteries had a Halloween special, an entire hour devoted to ghosts. Robert was pretty skeptical at this point about doing an entire episode on ghosts, Cosgrove said on the DVD commentary. He definitely, I don't think, thought it was a great idea for us to change the formula of having four segments of different categories for this Halloween special. It was a little risky doing uh, a one hour on one topic. Right. NBC had asked the producers to create a one-hour special, Cosgrove said, because the network had gotten wind that there was going to be a Jack the Ripper special in syndication. Oh, shit. One of those live event specials that revealed the secret identity of Jack the Ripper at the end of the show. Uh Mm Uh-huh. And they said, we want you to come up with a stunt program on Halloween. But we said, wait, we're the people producing the Jack the Ripper special. We don't want to do that. And they said, we don't care. So we came up with this, which clobbered the Jack the Ripper special. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, when Unsolved Mysteries returned to air on Spike TV in 2008, the new episodes featured re-edited versions of prior re- uh, reenactments, along with updates on past cases, all hosted by Law & Order alum Dennis Farina. <laughs> Just like, okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, okay. Both of which are dead now, Robert yeah. Sapp and Dennis Farina, yeah. so it's like, oh. Is there, is there an Unsolved Mysteries curse? dun 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 is Virginia Madsen saying? <laughs> God. And before we say our ending spiel, I'd like to read a list from thelineup.com called Nine Episodes of Unsolved Mysteries That Still Give Us Nightmares. Number one, Who Killed Caitlin? Season 5, Episode 15. Lois Duncan made a career of writing teen thrillers like I Know What You Did Last Summer, but she never imagined her own daughter would become the victim of a heinous crime. Oh, damn. While driving home from her boyfriend's house, a car pulled up alongside Caitlin Arquette and shot her to death. Fuck. 
Lois Duncan main, long maintained that Kate's boyfriend was involved in drugs and gang activity, and that someone connected with him had killed Kate to silence her. As this episode digs into the strange circumstances of Kate's death, your skin will crawl. Update. Tragically, Kate's murder remains unsolved. Lois Duncan died in 2016. She never gave up on her daughter's case, and even wrote a book about her search called Who Killed My Daughter. Fuck. That's fucked up, man. It is. Number two. The Mysterious Disappearance of Gail Delano. Season 1, Episode 4. The episode containing the tragic story of Gail Delano first aired in 1988, but has stuck with us ever since. De- uh, Delano was a single mother of two looking for companionship in the personal ads when she disappeared on June 21st, 1986. Uh-oh. Her family believed that she had perhaps been abducted by her date for the afternoon or another man she had been seeing. A traveler did identify Gail as the woman to whom he had given a ride, but after that tip, that case went cold. Update. After her episode aired, a coroner from Alabama recognized Delano as the Jane Doe who had committed suicide in a hotel two years earlier. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Number three. The Brutal Murder of Brooke Baker, Season 10, Episode 2. When 19-year-old journalism student Brooke Baker was discovered brutally murdered in her apartment with a bathtub faucet left running, Authorities had theorized that the story she was working on for her college paper had enraged the killer. Uh-oh. At the time of her death, Baker had been writing about an alleged date rape at one of her college's fraternities. Ooh. Update. Another student, Erica Elaine Norman, went missing three months after the episode aired. Though her body wasn't found in her apartment, the crime scene was identical to Brooks, down to the faucet left running. When authorities brought in the last man Erica had been seen with, he had agreed to give them a DNA sample, which matched blood found at both crime scenes. Got him! Got he! Number four. The Circleville Letters, Season 7, Episode 6. After Mary Gillespie of Circleville, Ohio started receiving threatening letters accusing her of an extramarital affair, her husband Ron went to confront the person he believed to be the writer of these letters, gun in hand. Uh-oh. On his way there, he crashed his truck and was killed. Police confirmed that he had fired one shot before the crash, then threatening messages in the form of signs appeared in the road near Mary's home. When she went to rip them down and turned their uh, booby-trapped, a pistol primed to go off when the sign was removed. Dude! The gun belonged to Mary's brother-in-law, Paul, who had recently separated from Ron's sister. Paul was convicted and sent to prison. But while there, continued to receive letters from the Circleville writer, as did Mary and other members of the community. Update. Paul has since been released from jail and maintains his innocence. Shortly after the episode aired, Unsolved Mysteries received a postcard supposedly written by the Circleville writer, but did not reveal their identity. Holy shit. Mm. Number 5. The Eeps Bandits, Season 8, Episode 6. Opal Johnson was working in the post office in Eeps, Alabama, when two masked men one white and one black, robbed the office of $700 and kidnapped Opal, stealing her ring and credit cards and eventually forcing her into the trunk of their car. While inside, she overheard the two arguing over whether or not to kill her, but Opal didn't waste any time. Using the tire iron, she jimmied the lock and escaped. Good for her. Update. Though the black suspect was later spotted, and Opal's credit cards were used to make purchases in Franklin and Toledo, the two were never apprehended. Mm. Opal Johnson died in 2010. Number 6. Carrie Lynn Nixon, the teen who vanished while in a grocery store run. Season 1, Episode 24. 
16-year-old Carrie Lynn Nixon ran to the grocery store on the evening of June 22, 1987, just 700 feet from her door. She never made it back home. Fuck. Two long years passed, and then Carrie's parents thought they spotted her in a New Kids on the Block concert video. But the girl in question turned out not to be Carrie. Oh. Update. In 1994, seven years after her disappearance, Carrie's remains were found not far from her home. A man named Robert Anthony Jones confessed to her rape and murder. His guilty plea was an attempt to get a lighter sentence for his wife, who had been driving the getaway car during the series of robberies the two had committed. Jones was sentenced to 18 years to life and has been denied parole as recently as 2017. Good. He, He remains incarcerated. The Grizzly Ends of Don Henry and Kevin Ives, Season 1, Episode 5 and 10. In the early morning hours of August 24, 1987, a train conductor noticed two bodies covered by a green tarp on the track. It was too too late to stop the train from running the bodies over, but judging from their lack of movement, he told the police they were already dead. The two bodies were identified as teenagers Don Henry and Kevin Ives. The police claimed that the boys were passed out from smoking too much marijuana. Yeah, okay. Their families cried foul and the case was reopened and another autopsy was performed, revealing injuries consistent with homicide. Update. The police theorized that the boys may have been killed by drug dealers, but the case remains unsolved. Jeez. Number 8. Kathy Hobbs, who believed she would die before she was 16. Season 1, Episode 16. Like Carrie Lynn Nixon... spooky. Spooky. Like Carrie Lynn Nixon, Kathy Hobbs disappeared into thin thin air after a trip to the grocery store. But terrifyingly, Kathy had long-held superstitions that she would die before she was 16. That's fucked up. She disappeared just three months after her 16th birthday. Mm. Investigators found letters she had written to her family in the event of her death. Nine days later, Kathy's body was discovered. She had been bludgeoned to death. Three months after her disappearance, an anonymous caller left a message with police that he had witnessed Kathy's abduction. Though the caller never came forward, police later learned Kathy's murder to a serial killer, Michael Lee Lockhart. Lockhart was executed in 1997. Oh, at least there was some justice. And and number nine. The Butcher of Kingsbury Run, Season 5, Episode 13. Also known as the Cleveland Torso Murderer, this horrifying historic case remains unsolved. The serial killer is believed to be responsible for upwards of 12 murders in Cleveland, Ohio, beginning in 1935. The killer's M.O. was to always behead and dismember his victims, sometimes cutting the body in half. Jesus. Elliot Ness of the FBI spearheaded the investigation, but the, up- but the case went cold. Update. Two men were suspected of being the butcher. One died in prison under mysterious circumstances, possibly beaten to death by the police. And the other, who used to send Ness harassing postcards, died in a veterans hospital. Ness himself died in 1957. The identity of the butcher was never revealed, though some theorized that maybe the same person for the responsible for the murder of Elizabeth Short, known as the Black Dahlia. Oh. Which is just like, oh shit. And in a weird bit of synchronicity, Elliot Ness was played by Robert Stack in the Untouchables TV series. Wow. Wow. Full circle. Full circle, baby. So we reached the end of another wild ride here at Toys R Us. If you like what you heard and learned and you'd like to continue learning, consider doing the following. Leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes slash Apple Podcast. It helps immensely and isn't ego-based by any means. No. 
You can follow us on all social media. We're at Toys R Us Podcast across the board. And you can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Toys R Us Podcast. Until next time, remember, in the words of Robert Stack himself, for every mystery, there is someone somewhere who knows the truth. Perhaps that person is watching. Perhaps it's you. And remember, you will always be a Toys R Us kid. I'd like to take the time out to thank our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. So, thank you to Jeremy, Jessica, Nicole, Amy, Nicole, Nicole, Juanita, Sabrina, Shannon, and Stephen. Thanks a bunch, guys. If you have any information regarding the cases presented tonight, please call 1-800-876-5353. If you wish, you need not give your name. 1-800-876-5353. Next week on Unsolved Mysteries, the story of D.B. Cooper. 17 years ago, he hijacked an airliner and held 42 people hostage. Then he parachuted into the wilderness of the Pacific Northwest, Many believe this hijacker is still alive. From new evidence, we have commissioned a police composite that may be the first accurate description of D.B. Cooper. For every mystery, there is someone somewhere who knows the truth. Perhaps that someone is watching. Perhaps it's you.